This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me for the fourth season of The Wild. I know it's been a bit of a break since our last episode, but over that time, we've been traveling around the world and closer to home here in the Pacific Northwest, working on stories that show the amazing connections we share with nature, from endangered Iberian lynx in Spain, to sea otters on the Olympic Peninsula of Washington, to owls on a military base in Oregon. We've got a lot of exciting stories to share this season. And you know, people often ask us how they can help us create more stories, which is awesome. Uh, The Wild is a joint production of myself and KUOW Public Radio. And you can support this vital work by checking out our show notes. And you'll find a link there about contributing small monthly amounts to my wildlife organization, Chris Morgan Wildlife, through Patreon. Become a part of the Wild community and help fuel the next adventure. Thank you. Enjoy the episode. It's October, and I'm journeying across the Iberian Peninsula by car. Ah, there's the Portuguese radio now. Just coming in right here on the border. I do love a good border crossing. Must be because I'm a fan of bank robbery movies? I don't know. But this border takes me from Spain into northeast Portugal to witness a really interesting story that's unfolding. Por favor, ¿dónde está la frontera de Portuguesa? ¿Cuántos kilómetros? I'm on my way to meet a man who has a vision for rebuilding a dysfunctional ecosystem. After an hour of driving under a beautiful blue Mediterranean sky, wow, what a spot, I pull up a steep cobbled street into a village. Pedro? I'm Pedro. Pedro! Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Welcome. Hello. And our rendezvous site is at a rather unexpected place. (laughs) It's a perfect place for a castle, right? You can see all around here. Well, I think that was the purpose of building the castle here. Like something from a fairy tale, the castle sits on top of a perfect thousand-foot hill with a view all around. We walk around the ramparts. It's blowing a gale. So this border region between Portugal and Spain has been a war zone throughout the Middle Ages. And these were the castles that defend the border on each side. This is Portuguese biologist Pedro Prata, who's leading a pretty remarkable movement here. Portugal sits on the western edge of Western Europe, nestled between Spain and the Atlantic Ocean, and famous for its explorers, that delicious, rich, fortified wine called Port, and its history. Yeah, so we're getting into the castle through the main door. Oh, this is incredible. How old is this? So this is uh, 13th century, if I'm not mistaken, but Middle Ages, for sure. He's brought me here to this castle because it's a fantastic vantage point to see all of the Coa Valley here in Portugal. But you can see on the horizon lots of hills and a deep canyon. That's the deep canyon of the Douro and the Coa. 
to the south there. Of course, what we aim to do is to protect the river and all its surroundings, all the forest that feeds the river and the inhabitants of that forest. But it's hard to see many trees at all, just miles and miles of brush. The dense old forests that were here are now mostly gone, cut down and replaced with pastures for sheep and olive groves generations ago. And now, the shepherds and other farmers are abandoning this region in droves. This checkered history has led to a poor economy, and brush instead of trees, and an explosion of wildfires. But Pedro has a new vision for those who still call this place home. I see a great potential in this landscape to be a wildlife corridor. It already is, and if it in reinforced in the coming decades, I envision that uh, we will have the movement of animals, the wildlife, the great migrations coming back, as they did in the past. We have a chance here and the opportunity to bring that back. Rewild it, bring back the forests, ecosystems and wild animals, and create a new, healthy space for all to create an ecological utopia in the Coa Valley of Portugal. From KURW in Seattle, I'm Chris Morgan. Welcome to the wild. There goes the silence, hey? I think I've triggered every dog in the village that's left. I'm here in Jardo, a little Portuguese village next to the Coa River, five miles from the border of Spain. I say every dog that's left because this small town is practically empty. Pedro's brought me here to show me what's happening to the region. There are about 100 homes here, but... Nowadays, I think this is reduced to less than 20 living permanently here, yes. Rural abandonment, it's called, and it's left the place feeling like a ghost town. No kids running around, no sounds of farm animals, shuttered windows, Mediterranean adobe roof tiles that have now faded. This one is crumbling down. This used to be a really huge uh, house and uh, is now completely abandoned. You can still see the grapes that no one harvested. Yeah, just absolutely loaded with grapes on yeah. this vine tree and, and uh, yeah, just sitting there rotting. And all around villages like this, there are hundreds of miles of stone walls built by hand using rocks that were picked up from the land by farmers to make room for their sheep and cattle pastures. Forests were cut down as well because it was all about having livestock on the land. The place screams hard physical labor. For thousands of years, this land was lived in and toiled as an agricultural region. But then, in the 60s, steep competition from the global market began to make farming completely unprofitable for locals, so people just abandoned the land. Now, that might seem like a good thing when it comes to rewilding. Fewer people means more room for nature, but it's not that simple. Rural abandonment has led to a cascade of problems for both the humans and the wildlife. As Pedro and I turn a corner on the cobbled street, we see an elderly man unloading some things from his truck. Can I talk to him? Yeah, let's see. 
He's in his 60s, wearing a brown flat cap and has a friendly face. He's just arrived this morning from France. Really? Yeah. So he was born here and migrated to France. Uh, all his life was there. And now he's retired and now he comes back more often. The allure of high-paying jobs in cities or abroad was very tempting for struggling farmers. So um, when he was young, there was a lot of work for little pay and everybody felt like that. And a few of them risked to go abroad to France and they came back showing that they are earning some money abroad. And that influenced many people to go as well Mm. and influenced him as well to go. The man sits down next to us on a stone wall. With so few people around, he seems really happy to have a chat. He can remember a time when this village looked very different. There was lots of uh, families with many siblings, so large families, uh, and nowadays there's none. Quantas pessoas é que moram no jardim agora? Agora afetivas aqui afetivas mora uma, duas, três, quatro, cinco pessoas. It's only five residents nowadays. Wow, how many there used to be? E quais é que havia há 50 anos? Antigamente há 50 anos havia aqui mais de 300 pessoas. More than 300. Havia uma. From 300 people to five, just gone. And this pattern continued for decades. At one point, 50,000 people a year were leaving Portuguese villages like this and moving to towns and cities or abroad. Portugal only has a population of 10 million people, so it's easy to imagine how that changed the feel of rural society here. And the ecology too. The old man's eyes wander for a moment, like he's remembering the past. He tells us about seeing plows in endless fields alongside the river. Everything, everything, was, yeah, everything was cultivated here in this village, the next village, both sides of the Kua, everything. And everything was done uh, by hand. So there were many hands on the ground working all the time. But no more. Most of the fields are left empty. So that abandonment of the active people from this landscape has changed the socio-economic dynamics of the region. Farms go, then local businesses, bars, the village shop. And this evacuation over time has even impacted how this landscape looks. Some might look at it and see it abandoned and, and see it, that as a problem. I look at it as a liberation sometimes of a lot of large tracts of uh, uh, space that are not compatible with, with, with some uh, activities and are prime for nature to bounce back. It's this thinking that has brought Pedro and his team at Rewilding Portugal together. They're a young, dynamic bunch of people and they're all looking at this place through the same eyes, the possibilities. But all these possibilities were almost lost before they ever got started. In 1990, construction began on a large hydroelectric dam to flood the Coa River Valley. But in a fantastic twist of fate, just before the valley was flooded, a local archaeologist discovered some engravings. It turns out they were ancient Paleolithic rock art. Thousands of animal figures like deer and giant aurochs, a bit like an enormous bull on steroids, and wolves scratched into the rock. 
This art was carved by Stone Age humans over several millennia, and really reveals the energy of an abundant and dynamic place full of life. Even species like canids that we think it is a wolf, a fish that we think it is a salmon, all of these animals portray movement. And the koa from 28, 25,000 years ago already humans were depicting this movement. There's a history here of this movement, different species and peoples moving through the landscape through the millennia. And all of this history, and even the valley itself, was on the edge of being lost to the rising waters if the dam was built. Therefore, there was this um, civil movement to stop the dam, mm -hmm. to, uh, to save the engravings, and it was successful. And, uh, and they stopped the dam and, saved and created the park. It was recognized by UNESCO immediately as a World Heritage Site. The now protected Coa Valley became like a blank canvas upon which to paint a modern-day version of wild Portugal. Like archaeology saving ecology. And for Pedro, this is also a very personal mission. He's a local and has a lot of pride in his home. I'm uh, from a small village close to the main city here, which is Guarda, uh, main, a small village in the mountains in Serra da Estrela. His love for the place and the way he was raised really influenced his path. When he was about seven years old, he was out in the field close to here with his dad, who introduced him to some biologists studying the Iberian lynx population. They showed him the work they were doing. And when we were... Going back home, I asked my father, what are, what, what, what are those guys? Who are they? And he said, oh, those are the biologists. And I thought internally to myself, okay, that's what I want to be. I want to be a biologist. That was the day. He eventually left the area, went to school in Portugal's capital, Lisbon, and the Netherlands, then crossed the Atlantic and spent years in some vast and wild places, including Brazil and the United States. I'm one of the few from my family and friends who uh, left after high school who actually came back. Um, so from the people which I grew up with, I'm kind of the exception, the one that came back. And I do understand why people don't come back. I mean, there's lack of opportunities for their uh, from training, so there's not much job opportunities, they need to their livelihood. The scale of the places he'd traveled to, especially the size of the nature reserves, inspired him about the possibilities in Portugal to really bring some natural balance back to a landscape abused by mankind for hundreds of years. We can look 50 or 60 or 70 years into the future and design a strategy that is beneficial for both the rewilding of the landscape and the rejuvenation of the social uh, fabric of this landscape. But there's something that's getting in the way of Pedro's plan to regrow the forest and bring new life to this region. Fire. This area is full of all kinds of fuel for it. We stop off to take a look at one of the problems, an old tree plantation. Decades ago, trees like this were planted to grow fast. A cash cow of timber. There are hundreds of tall pine trees, all planted in neat rows. They're not a native species, and there's no wildlife in these forests. It's a monoculture. Nothing underneath them except a bed of dry pine needles, which is a huge fire risk. The bark itself is dry. 
and everything in here just feels like it's been baked by the sun for months and it's all part of the problem. This is like a tinderbox waiting to go up. There are plantations of eucalyptus trees from Australia as well, another incredibly flammable tree. To bring it back to health, what this area needs are not these non-native plantations, but the natural forests that used to be here and all the wildlife that comes with them. And uh, what we're missing here is a fully grown forest. That's what this landscape should be covered with. Mm -hmm. uh, and it didn't have the chance because it's, it's burning too often. We continue driving down a very rough, bumpy road lined with dry stone walls. And then we jump out and we walk till we reach another wall that crosses a hillside. And here, the entire valley on the other side of the wall is burned. A wildfire swept through here in the summer. This is the broom that is... Oh, just completely dry, tender, black. Broom is a native shrub, but it's also highly combustible. As far as I can see, the ground is blackened. Literally charcoal on the ground here. Charred rocks, even. In an odd twist, rural abandonment is partly to blame for these fires. Farmers are not here anymore to graze the land, and the broom takes over the landscape. It's the perfect fuel for fire, and unfortunately, there's a lot of it. What happened in this case, specifically, is that the ignition started at the bottom of the valley, so it just rushed through the whole hillside very quickly. All it takes is a lightning strike or a flicked cigarette. I try and picture this unstoppable fire sweeping up the valley and consuming all that broom, especially in the heat of a 100-degree summer. But then, when the rains start in the fall, all that broom starts to grow again, which might sound like a good thing at first. But the problem here is that I've seen this landscape exactly on this spot burn like this several times over. Really? And that, uh, that, uh, that's the frequency that we're trying to diminish. So this is the problem. Too many fires too frequently in a place like this. Yes. As you can see, everything that is burned is mostly bush. Bush is the first uh, secessional stage of vegetation after disturbance, such as fire. Um, what happens is every time you, you burn the bush, the bush will come back. Uh, because that's how nature reacts. Nothing but the broom gets to take root and grow. The ecosystem is stuck and doesn't have time to grow to the next type of ecosystem before another fire burns it all down. In ecology, it's called a serial stage, an ecosystem on its way to becoming another type of ecosystem, like a grassland slowly being taken over by shrubs and eventually becoming a forest. The forest is called a climax community, the end of the succession. Because it's the first successional t stage that will create the conditions for the second, which is more tree-dominated, and the later stages, which is the climax and towards the climax of the, of the forest. The problem of having such a high frequency of fire is that we never reach later stages of succession. Oh, it's always in the infancy. Yes, it's like as if you had a, a wound and you have a, a, a crust and your, your body is healing and you just keep peeling that crust off. Peeling the scab off, yeah. Yeah, it's the same as what happens with this kind of fire that happens. In this region, we calculated on an average of 2.7 years. A fire every 2.7 years, when it should be three or four times per century. 
So you can see, this place is stuck. Ecological arrested development. So there needs to be something to break this cycle, something on the landscape to keep down the growth of broom so that larger trees can grow as part of that next successional stage. Pedro and his team have a solution. And if it works, it'll not only reduce fires, but will completely change what this area looks like. At SoundSide, we bring you news and conversation rooted in the Pacific Northwest. Hi, I'm Libby Denkman. I think of my job hosting SoundSide as number one, asking tough questions of powerful people, the questions you KUOW listeners want answered. And two, bringing you a daily slice of the fascinating, confounding, and often goofy side of life in Washington State. Join me for SoundSide at noon and 8 p.m. on KUOW or anytime on the SoundSide podcast. Do you want to have a coffee first of all? Oh, yes, absolutely. Sounds like a great idea. It's early morning in a Coa Valley village, and I've met up with ecologist Sarah Aliakar. She works with Pedro and focuses on each of the species that are part of the rewilding puzzle, from plants to animals. Oh, yeah, that is a stiff espresso. That'll set me up for the day. And this morning, after our jolt of caffeine, we're heading out to find some allies in the rewilding process four-legged allies, a herd of Soraya horses. Soraya horses are a very rare breed, an ancient breed of horse that developed in Portugal, discovered in the 1920s. Sarah and the team brought 10 of them here from southern Portugal as part of the effort to rewild the Coa Valley. Actually, there is like this mystery of, uh, like, it was... They are not sure if it was a horse or it seems like it was more like a like a donkey, like a wild ass. Yeah. Um, called zebro. It was like uh, it was like uh, yeah, a wild uh, ass yeah. that was in the Iberian Peninsula until the medieval times. They have long, skinny faces and black stripes on their legs. You can picture them etched in the ancient war carvings near here. There are only about 200 Soraya horses left in the world. These ones arrived here in May 2021 in a dual effort, really, by rewilding Portugal to help save this breed, but also to deploy them to help protect this landscape against fire. Sarah drives us to where the horses roam the valley. We have to keep stopping the truck to open up a series of gates that help keep the precious horses in place. As we continue up the bumpy road, Sarah tells me she feels a bit like a transplant herself. She grew up in a city with no nature, not far from Madrid. When she moved to this area from Spain, locals would ask her why she'd want to live here. And when I explain that to them, sometimes they are surprised, like that this place that for them is like their everyday life, what they have always known, kind of like creates attraction. And other people wants to come here and live here. What do you say to them uh, when you say why you think it's special? How do you explain it to them? I say that I think uh, nature here is amazing. And also people here is super welcoming. 
we arrive at the end of the road and hit the trail on foot to see if we can track down the herd. We have the horses collared with some devices. Oh, really? Yes. Radio collared horses? Yes. Um, Because then we can know where they are, we can understand their movements. As we head out into the brush in the warm sun, Sarah uses the GPS locations on her phone to locate the horses. She's going to show me how they're helping to fight these major wildfires. The Soraya horses are perfect for this ecosystem. They're hardy, ancient, they can handle themselves around predators, and of course, they love to graze the broom. So they keep it lower. I see. It's not like, because this can be two meters or three meters tall, this could be taller than you. Mm -hmm. This can create like kind of completely close-up forests. Mm-hmm. But you have the large herbivores working in between, so you see how much grasses are in between then. Sarah describes the horses as a natural fire brigade. They open up the landscape and create opportunities for other plants to grow. And that is very important because it's what wildlife needs. We continue our walk towards the horses. There's something about being in this ancient place, anticipating these ancient horses. As we get closer, our voices get more quiet. I'm just following behind Sarah. And she's following uh, the satellite locations on her phone of the horses. How far are they? It's just a couple of hundred of meters now. Okay. Then one of them slowly appears through the small oak trees about 30 yards away. The sun is silhouetting it. Into the past from 10,000 years ago. But it's the future too. Then two others appear. One chestnut brown colour, the other grey-white. Those long slim faces. Oh my goodness, he's right here. I get down. I'm lying on the ground now. And one starts to approach me. His name is Nilo. He's the one that has spent more time close to people. So that's the reason he's the most friendly one. He's just a few feet away now. That is no ordinary horse. No, it's not. Thousands of years ago, it was wild herbivores like these and the others in the ancient rock art like deer and wild aurochs. They did the job of grazing the combustible plants and shrubs. Then until recent decades, it was sheep. But even they've gone because of the abandonment. But these horses are doing more than just suppressing fire by eating fuel. The hope is they'll change the entire look and diversity of this landscape. A mixture of habitats is the goal. Heterogeneity instead of homogeneity. It's often called a mosaic in ecology, a landscape that has a a natural patchwork of different diverse ecosystems. And that's what rewilding is is gonna bring, Mm. like, more like ancient forests Mm. to the territory and and pastures, open areas. Mm. And this stuff? (laughs) I I was about to talk about that, yeah. (laughs) This stuff is very, very important. What are we looking at here? (laughs) Technically, I think it's called a pile of shit, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly the technical name, yes. (laughs) So, yeah, this is this important fertilizer this horse manure this is horse manure is super important fertilizer because you have here this fresh one but if you look here 
it's like completely dry you know what you see here is just the dry grasses coming back like all the organic matter already incorp getting incorporated in the soil huh. so this is a way in which the organic matter is going to increase also because this manure has no chemicals in it Horse manure and the droppings from other herbivores relocated here will also help this region get out of that arrested development and move past the first successional stage. So horses, large herbivores, are also natural dispersers of, of seed dispersers. Mm. Um, yeah. They're helping to plant, plant the new forest? They are, together with the birds. The horses and birds are just part of the solution to keeping the broom and the fires in check, like a stopgap measure, really, until wild herbivores like red deer and roe deer return in bigger numbers to play the role too. Sarah and the team may even bring in tourist cattle, like today's aurochs. It's all a bit like Noah's Ark. All these herbivores are critical for creating a rich diversity of habitats that will prove irresistible to the next wave of animals that are looking for that kind of place. Mammals, birds, insects, prey and predators. And their return has already begun as the Coa Valley regains its health. Then it's all about connecting these parcels of land in the Coa watershed, these biodiverse refugia allowing wildlife from dragonflies to wolves to travel and disperse. And with this, protecting and connecting habitat, comes something very important, resilience. Ecosystems become stronger the bigger and more connected they are. And we need big, resilient ecosystems so they can provide what are called ecosystem services, the things ecosystems do for human health and survival, like providing nutritious food, clean water, oxygen, even recreation spaces. We have major challenges in front of us with a major biodiversity crisis and, and climate change. So it is important that we show the things that can work and like rewilding large landscape scale restoration is, is fundamental for the futures. Meanwhile, it's not just animals that are doing this work. It's a team effort with other angles to cover too. Pedro takes me to meet two more important members of his crew. <laughs> I'm so jealous. Two young guys on motorcycles. They look like something out of a Bond film. Identical bikes and matching gear, spare fuel strapped to their saddlebags. We followed them on a winding road to the headwaters of the Coa River. So, Chris, uh, this is Miguel. Miguel, nice to meet you. And Gonzalo. Gonzalo Matush and Miguel Pontush are on the front line of rewilding here in the Coa watershed. Pedro calls them their tactical team. They're out looking for early signs of any fire, and they act as a wildlife patrol. They're all smiles. Miguel clearly loves his job. So, in a good day, we might do 450 kilometers. Mm -hmm. from traveling to patrolling and coming back wow. onto base. 450 kilometers is a long, a long, a long day on a yes. motorcycle. Yes. And they're able to cover a lot of ground fast. Mostly uh, we look out for environmental crimes, bad hunting practices. Uh, we do a bit of monitoring on some species that we encounter along our patrols. They're like the eyes and ears on the ground for Pedro. 
But Miguel and Gonzalo tell me that actually more than half of their time is spent on education. So when they're not zipping around the mountainside on two wheels, they're talking to locals where the rubber hits the road, like motorcycling ambassadors, explaining the rewilding process to people, explaining how bringing animals back and restoring the forests will be good for the region. And we, we've been getting good results. We've been getting a lot of traditional-minded people that are now starting to listen to what we two youngsters have to say and, and to take on board our ideas. And, and we've, we've been having some, some improvement on, the, on how people feel. Hola, prazer. Ah, Chris. Chris. Carlos. Carlos, prazer. Miguel and Gonzalo have brought me to meet Carlos Serra, a friend of theirs. You might say a man with the oldest job in the world. He's a shepherd and was originally pretty skeptical about the idea of rewilding the koa. We find him in a field with his four eager border collies and another one of his dogs hidden right in amongst the sheep. What's he saying, Miguel? We're looking for the livestock guarding dog. Yeah. It's that thing that looks like a, a stone, a slab, in the middle of the ground. Oh, he's lying that's down. Him. Yeah, that's him. The guarding dog also has an ancient job, to aggressively protect the flock from wolves and anything else. The advice is, don't touch the sheep. Okay, don't touch the sheep. Don't touch the sheep. The sheep. That's why Carlos was uneasy with Pedro's rewilding plan at first. More herbivores can mean more wolves and more potential problems for his sheep. And Carlos is trying to make a living and keep a tradition alive. And um, how long has he been doing this work? Can you ask him? Since he was born, he says. Since he was born. And his family before him? Grandparents, parents, they all have the same lifestyle. Wow. Miguel and Gonzalo have had many conversations like this one with Carlos, explaining how rewilding the land can work for him and the community here. He says that uh, nature will, will definitely uh, be a, um, uh, a stepping stone to bring people into the region again, but he doubts that anyone will come back to, to the old days, to live the old days mm-hmm. in farming and, and cattle raising. But he believes that nature will, will play a role in, in bringing some tourism, some people from the city, getting to know what we've got in, in, in the country that most people don't, don't know. And now Pedro and his team have come up with a plan, something that works for rewilding, for Carlos and other shepherds, an agreement to sell wool from his sheep for clothing products made in Portugal, in return for agreeing to take steps to coexist with wolves. It's time for me to leave as they chat among their motorcycles and sheep. It could be easy to look at this issue of rural abandonment negatively. It's changed the look and feel of this place. But Pedro and his team see it from a positive perspective. It is land liberation, not abandonment. At the same time, we can look at it as opportunity for new economic development that should be taken by younger generations that can come back and make use of this landscape. It's so interesting because uh, you're rewilding your vision of rewilding doesn't exclude people, does it? No, it includes people as much as possible. 
people need the connection with nature. But I know that societies that are more and more urbanized, they lack that 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 connect, connection with nature and they need it. And rewilding Portugal even has specialized team members to help support new businesses like sustainable tourism by helping them to plan, get access to markets, or even give small loans, all to help bring back a healthy, thriving community. And uh, what we do is support their development and, and their network, their synergy in between the different uh, um, businesses mm-hmm. in order to, as a whole, as a whole network, to be bigger and stronger together yeah connected like an ecosystem itself yeah we think about it always as an ecosystem i mean everything uh kind of mimics what an ecosystem is like this is truly a remarkable vision for this beautiful valley as i sat not far from the horses with sarah aliakar staring at the valley in front of her a little misty eyed she described to me what she would hope to see if she was here in 100 years well, I guess first thing I would dream of seeing ancient forests, which is something that has completely disappeared from here. So these trees we are looking at would be then 100 or 50 years, like some of them 200 would be huge oaks. We would see more lichens and woodpeckers and owls and invertebrates that are attached and related to those ancient trees. We would see wolf packs running around and hunting. We would see the ibex coming back, the Iberian lynx, hunting on rabbits, and we would see the beavers in the koa. And we would see people living in the valley with... um, with a mindset of enjoying nature and enjoying the clean air and clean water and fertile soils that are not being um, burned out constantly. And I can imagine also nature-based economy with natural good quality products coming from the landscape and and visitors enjoying an amazing experience of, of being here. We can also learn from the past and, and see how can we bring those pieces, not as a way to bring back the past, but, but as a way of recovering what is missed and belong here for a better future. How does it feel to be at the beginning of that? It's powerful. It is powerful and it's a pleasure. As I leave Portugal, driving between the castles and old olive groves, I see Carlos, the shepherd, and his sheep walking across a field next to the road. It's pretty incredible to think about the layers of history and ecology, humans and nature in these hills, 
these worlds that have overlapped over a very long arc of time. It reminds me that ecosystems are always in flux, fits and starts, growth and death, one species sometimes dominating over another. But what's clear is that there's an opportunity here in this corner of Portugal to create something wondrous and thriving, to build on the best of all these things. We have some great photos of my time in Portugal on Instagram at The Wild Pod, and you can find me at Chris Morgan Wildlife. The Wild is inspired not just by nature, but by people who work in it, love it, protect it. The Wild is a production of KUW in Seattle and me, Chris Morgan, with support from Wildlife Media. One way to support this vital work is through my wildlife organization, Chris Morgan Wildlife, on Patreon. There's a link in the show notes. Our producer is Matt Martin. Jim Gates is our editor. A very special thank you for their kind financial support to Jill and Scott Walker, Rose Letwin, Ellen Ferguson, Anna Kimball, John Taylor, Mark and Rebecca Wilkins, Bob Yellowlees, Annie Mize, Paul Lister, and his organization, the European Nature Trust, for making this trip to Portugal possible. Our production team includes Juan Pablo Chiquiza, April Craig, Michaela Ginotti, Cara McDermott, Brenda Phillips, Tio Popescu, Darcy Riggin-Schmidt, and Brendan Sweeney. Our theme music is by Michael Parker. I'm your host, Chris Morgan. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoy The Wild, please do ask your friends to follow our podcast and maybe give us a review. Thank you and take good care. At SoundSide, we bring you news and conversation rooted in the Pacific Northwest. Hi, I'm Libby Denkman. I think of my job hosting SoundSide as number one, asking tough questions of powerful people, the questions you KUOW listeners want answered. And two, bringing you a daily slice of the fascinating, confounding, and often goofy side of life in Washington State. Join me for SoundSide at noon and 8 p.m. on KUOW or anytime on the SoundSide podcast.